the experience of living as an expat in Ghana and in Malaysia. What are the differences, the similarities, um, you know, experiences, having experienced both, um, what things stand out for me, um, my appearance has changed and would I have um, cut my hair in Malaysia? Definitely not. And um, I can speak to that for ages. Um, and yeah, the, the benefits and challenges of living in different countries, a kind of generic question. And do I, and, um, do I think being a black expat is any different to being a white Caucasian expat? What are the differences that I've experienced, if any, in, in both countries? This is your host, Chukudi, and you are listening to the Other Expats podcast. Thanks for joining me on the Other Expats podcast, a podcast where African and black expats share their experiences and stories about living in Malaysia. My name is Chukudi Bara, and I'll be your host as we talk with our guest, Beke Waseme, about her experiences expatting in Malaysia and Ghana. Mbeke is a management coach, international education consultant, photographer, yoga instructor, and writer. Her books include Make the Changes, Feel the Joy, and How to Work and Live Abroad Successfully. We'll be talking about her experiences being an expat in Malaysia and Ghana, where she currently resides. Um, Mbeke, over to you. Hi, Chilk. Uh, thank you for having me on Other Expats. Good to see you again after all this time. <laughs> Indeed, yeah. Um, <laughs> who am I? My name is Umbeke. I am a mother of two children, two adults. My daughter is 30. My son is 25. Wow. I have worked in the educational world for 30 plus years. I am a executive coach and trainer and I also am a yoga teacher. Um, education is at the core of everything that I do. And I love traveling. So hence why I'm here, able to speak about being an expat, having lived in Ghana, where I am now again, and having lived in Malaysia, where we first met all those years ago. Yeah. I'm also a writer. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's, that's um, true. Yeah. You have. Yeah, I'm also a publisher. You have <laughs> you have books out, right? I know. I, I have. Remember. I have poetry books out right. and chapters in, in a number of books. So if you Google my name, it comes up. Um, chapters talking about the importance of image, particularly for African women in the UK. Right. Um, chapters in a book talking about what it feels like to be a black woman in the UK. These are both UK publications. Um, I have two poetry books out plus a book on how to work and live abroad successfully. So I think there are some key tips to making that a successful journey. Um, and another book on a self-development book on how we can change our lives um, by making some changes and then we can feel the joy. All right. All right. Well, that's quite a bit of writing right there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
but like like you said, you've 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 lived in you've lived in Ghana, you've lived in the UK, and you lived in Malaysia. Um, and maybe you you can share some tips. You you already have those in your book. Um, so maybe you don't yes. want to, you don't want to reveal everything. Um, people should get the book instead. <laughs> buy the book. But, buy the yeah. book. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe like some highlights of of um what your top maybe few tips are for for being an expert abroad, um especially relating to uh, maybe black expats. Yeah. Um, first of all, I'd say there's there's a big difference between being what I think is an expat, which is living and and or working abroad, and being what I call a successful expat. Okay. I think there is a big difference. I think that you can um, create a life either as a self-employed individual or through employment overseas, and you can take everything that you know that you you know and have done up to that point in your life with you overseas and live in exactly the same way. And for me, um, that's what I, I would call, in my eyes, probably an unsuccessful expat. That's just somebody relocating, but living life as they've lived it. Um, for me, a successful expat is about, one, um, really immersing yourself in the cu culture and practice of the place that you live in. And where opportunity allows, embrace that walk talk to strangers i've met some fabulous people talking to strangers um use public transportation hiding in a hired car is a bit like <laughs> being in a bubble in your space so you just kind of happen to pass by lots of things but actually when you're on public transportation you experience what the majority of people in that place experience um you meet people you meet other people like yourself um you know, the, the kind of trendy word now is your tribe, but you do, you meet, you meet your tribes, men and women in public transportation, you meet them climbing mountains, you know, you meet them um, on hiking trips, you meet, the, you meet them when you come out of your bubble and you're willing to embrace what's around you. You find out where you can get your clothes repaired when they, they tear or they're too big or they're too small or where you can get things made. You meet local artisans, um, who all have, have a story they all have a story um, but you have to for me to be a successful expert and to really say that you've lived in that country you have to be able to take some risks um, walk down those roads that the people in their cars say don't ever walk down um, don't be silly about it but but you know enjoy the place that you're in and, and all that it has you know try different foods um, you may like them, you may not like them. Um, I remember in in Malaysia, um, in my second year, yeah, I think in my second year there, I tried durian. And I had everyone telling me, oh, durian, it's not nice. And I've been to hotels where durian was banned. You know, you have a whole number of hotels in Malaysia that ban durian and they ban um, dragon fruit, the red one, because it stains. Yeah. And mangosteen as well, so because they stain. And so, you know, you're kind of going through this experience and you can either go with the narrative, which says, don't do this, don't do that. Or you can say, I'm going to try it. And when I tried it, as I said to my, my colleague at work, this is nowhere near as bad as people make <laughs> out. Yeah, at all. Um, and, I, and I ate it again and again. Um, 
And so, you know, it's, it's important to embrace those new experiences um, and to, yeah, you know, come out of your comfort zone sometimes, you know, walk along that hill that looks a little bit steeper than you thought and see where it takes you, see where it takes you physically in terms of the physical challenge and also see where it takes you mentally. Um, you, you'll meet new people. You might find a village up there that has old customs and practices that you are absolutely fascinated by. But if you hadn't taken that walk, you would never find out. So yeah, that's that's what I that's for me. That's what being an expat is, and it's 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 really about embracing all of those opportunities. So basically, it's like integrate. It's more like integrating into the society that you find yourself in, whatever society that is. Yeah, as yeah. much as you can, okay. as much as you can. And um, I am not naive as a black woman, as you know. As a light-skinned black woman, there are opportunities open to me that are not open to some black women and to dark-skinned black women because, you know, that racial profiling is real wherever you are in the world. And there are places that, that white people can walk into, male or female, or whatever gender they call themselves with the new definitions, mm -hmm. um, that I wouldn't have access to, you know. And I remember many many years ago as a photographer um i'm a trained photographer i've worked as a photographer for years and i remember buying a book um by somebody called angela fisher which was about africa and it's a big picture book it was a coffee table book and a lot of people were, were fascinated by it because she was giving us images of people like the wudabe uh, which we'd never seen and you know groups in africa that had just opened the door to her and said come in take your photographs and as I looked through this book, I knew that as a black woman, I would not have been allowed into most of those spaces. So, so I'm, I understand that reality, um, but my, my, my recommendation is based on where we can enter, let's enter. And, and if we're not sure, let's ask, because my experience over the years has been more times than not. When I ask, I'm told, yes, of course you can come in. So, you know, it's about taking that, that small risk, being a little bit different to maybe how you've lived in the past and being open, yeah, being open to those new experiences. Yeah, I think that's a, a strong point there because I think um, especially as Nigerians and not having the best passport in the world, um, we, we end up complaining a lot about places we cannot go to. Um, and most of those times we ignore the places we can go to. So. Um, I think, yeah, that's, that's something like attempt, go to the places you can go to first, at least while exactly. you're waiting for um, other new places. Exactly. I mean, I, I remember us going hiking Yeah. and there being very, very few other people who weren't Malaysians on that hiking trip, yeah. or on different hiking trips. And, you know, when I would hike on my own on a, on a regular weekend hike, it was predominantly Malaysians. And so people were, are you Malaysian? No, I'm not. And because of my skin color, I could be, I could be Malaysian, um, indigenous Malaysian. And because of my, my hair, which was, was bigger then, when I used to wear my Afro, people asked me if I was Orang Asli, and I was like, no. Um, and so, yeah, you know, but you, if, you know, if you're willing to come out of your comfort zone, you just learn so much about yourself. So. And if you want to learn about yourself and grow and have new experiences, as opposed to sitting in five-star hotels by a swimming pool, <laughs> drinking cocktails every day, which I cannot imagine doing. Um, but I'm sure for some people that's okay. But even that itself must at some point um, lack 
the the depth yeah. of of experience that going out and talking to people and, and finding out new things about our country from the people who were born there um yeah that that, that gives you all right yeah like you've you've lived you you had a lot of experience um living um in different places in, in malaysia and ghana in the uk um what yes would, what what would you say um are some of the main pros and cons of 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 these different places um especially i think we should include um the uk um and now you're you're black in a black country so that's um basically fine um i i hope um <laughs> not as straightforward as you may think yeah that's that's why I, that's why i say i hope because uh, uh, I, I i kind of feel like um since you're not west african like yeah that that there will definitely be that slight friction there still anyways um definitely. So, like, so what what's it been like for you like these three places what's 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 your experience been like so the uk is where i was born i was born in the uk my parents are from jamaica and people who are my age were raised as jamaicans right. so we have this 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 kind of weird um not weird but you know this this kind of dual personality dual um dual diet um you know the way that we communicate we can communicate with our jamaican family and we can also communicate with our peers in the uk and so you know all of us have an experience of of family or friends calling us at work and saying is that you because you've got your work voice on which yeah. sounds very different <laughs> to your home voice so you know that you know that that yeah. one so you know so so in the in, in england you learn to you learn to um have have those different personalities and to, to manage them well, depending on where you are and who you're with. And, and, I, and that's a skill. I think that's a great skill. Um, in England, though, you also, um, I'll talk about me personally. I also went through a lot of my life in, in a place where I was born, feeling that I wasn't welcome. Yeah? Feeling that I wasn't welcome, feeling that, Yes, yes, you were born here, but actually you're from somewhere else. Like, no, 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 I hold, I hold a UK passport. I was born here, I was born in this hospital on this day. But there's always, there was always a feeling, um, and often it was said, so particularly when I was at primary school, people would say to me, where do you come from? I, I come from here. No, no, where do you really come from? And, you know, there is an, um, an Asian, a short Asian video that I've used in training years later which is basically the same thing. So the Asian comedian is running and a white Caucasian man says to her, where are you from? And she says, I'm from here. And he says, no, but you sound, you sound like, yeah, I sound like I'm from here. And, you know, I've had people in England and in Malaysia say to me, oh, you speak really good English. I'm English. That's where I was born. No, no, but you speak really good English. What do you expect me to speak? <laughs> So, you know, I've had that experience growing up in England, the place yeah. that I was born in, and, you, and I'm thinking, this is just weird. And there is no level of diversity training and inclusion training that chips away at that old English racism, which is really subtle, um, but excludes, ex excludes on so many levels. So, you know, I've been in, I've been in, in employment where my line manager has said to me when I've applied for a promotion, um, another position, but higher than the one I'm in, we don't do things like that here. But my white colleagues have been able to apply for a promotion in a much shorter period of time 
being in the company and they were promoted and i was like oh okay so we don't we don't um promote our black staff as quickly as our white staff that's what we don't do here even though i'm better qualified than those people okay um so you get these messages you get these messages all the time you know if um when, when i used to wear a wig if i wore a wig and i wore that to work it would be like oh you look really good and when i wore my hair in braids i remember my manager saying to me you look so different <laughs> and when a white manager says that to you that can mean oh my god you're one of them mm-hmm. who wears <laughs> braids or you're a radical or we really like the the, the look with with the, with the with the straight hair we like that better because that's more acceptable around here and so you get these messages all the time you know you get um images of the successful black person in the UK is generally the one with the straight hair, with the wig, with the weave. Um, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm kind of harping on about the hair thing because hair is political, has been forever, yeah. and I'm sure it will be for the next 100,000 yeah. years. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so, you know, the UK experiences is this, you, you're kind of, you're, you're living in these worlds of, I am qualified, I am good at what I do, um, I'm very good at what I do, and yet other people will first of all hear my name. So, so politically, I made a decision to um, change my my European name to an African name when I was in my early twenties. I was a political radical Angela Davis um, follower, right. and okay. so as soon as my my awareness came, and my first time to Ghana was in my early twenties. The first time I visited Ghana, I'd, I'd read about Kwame Nkrumah. I'd, you know, met lots of radicals. I was like, I need to go to Ghana. So I came to Ghana and yeah, I need to get rid of that name. That name doesn't serve me. That name was given to me by my mom who loved me, but with her her limited understanding of, of me as an African woman and herself as an African woman, because, you know, she came up in a Christian household where Christianity meant accepting Christian values and Christian values were also about how we named each other. So when I changed my name, when I reclaimed my name, for a lot of people, um, it was a problem. And I would put hand and heart and say that sitting here now, there are lots of positions that I have applied for that I haven't even been selected for an interview for because of my name. Yeah. And there are bodies in the UK um, who have admitted in research that we don't look at people who have African or Asian names no. for our senior roles. Mm. We are happy to give them junior roles, but senior roles is a bit more difficult because people don't like being managed by somebody with an African or Asian name. This is quite a well-known fact for anybody who works in the so-called diversity and inclusion world. There's been quite extensive research over the years. So although I was born in England, I've always known that having an African name meant that my experience of prejudice and and that, that racial profiling would be heightened. I didn't realize the extent of it, but over the years, mm, you know, as I said, so many positions that I have applied for that I know I could do some, well, quite a few, I could do And to not even be shortlisted, yeah, I've had to just think, okay, this is real. Um, yeah, this is real. And the challenge is often about having 
black and brown people in senior managers, senior management positions, leadership roles in predominantly white organizations where they've done very little work to challenge their own prejudices. And if they do recruit black and brown people at senior leaders, senior leadership roles, they don't do the work with the rest of the team as to how they will manage their own prejudice. Um, I mean, I have an experience as a very young, I think I must have been 22 or 23, going for an interview in the publishing industry. And I am one of these people that has applied for roles in a whole range of different industries. Um, and having a, a real interest in books at the time, I thought, well, yeah, let's let's try this. And I went for an interview where I was interviewed by about 15 people, everyone in the wow. organization. <laughs> they were all white. They were all white, sitting in a semicircle. Um, a few people had actually pulled their chairs to the back. They were reading newspapers during the interview. And one of the questions to me was, how would I feel as a black person working with an all white team? And I said to them, that's not my question. That's your question. How will you feel? Yeah, I live in a predominantly white world and I have to deal with racial prejudice every day. How will you feel? How are you going to prepare for me coming to work here? And I knew that as soon as I answered that, I wasn't going to get the job. But yeah. at that point, I didn't care. <laughs> um, well, that was, that was a good question, like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, often you speak, I'm no longer tied to these organizations because those kind of questions put the onus on me having to do the work and um, the book, you know, why I'm no longer talking to white people about race is saying this, you know, why, why am I having to explain something that's your problem? Yeah, the definitions around race, um, the treatment, the racial profiling, the whether it's at the police level, whether it's at the civil service level, whether it's at the immigration level, all of those things generally come from a Eurocentric white led perspective. And so you want me to explain how you can make that better yeah. <laughs> when you are the one who, who devised it. There seems to be some misunderstanding here yeah. as to how we go forward. Um, so, yeah, so, the, so that job always, that, that opportunity to respond always is really because, yeah, they want to know how I would manage working with an all-white team. And I said, well, you are all the same. How are you going to manage with me? Because I, I have to manage... Um, white people and their views and perspectives every day. So how are you going to manage? And um, yeah, a lot of them didn't. I was like, this is bizarre. This is this is bizarre. <laughs> um, so yeah. so yes. Yeah, so, so even though born in the UK, there's there are there've been many many opportunities, um, experiences, and scenarios where I've just said, yeah, this place is just so unwelcoming <laughs> on so many levels. Um, and, you know, when my parents left Jamaica and they had been, you know, Jamaica had been a colony of the UK. So their response and call to the motherland needing help to rebuild the country was one of, of goodwill. They wanted to, to do right by that they felt had supported them in some ways. And they, you know, they, they, even as UK citizens at the time, ex experienced awful, awful, awful prejudice, um, physical 
um, abuse and definitely verbal abuse. And, you know, for, for many of the people of my, my, my mother actually passed away when she was in her 40s. Oh, but for many okay. of the people in my mother's generation who are in their 60s, 70s now, they've had to experience the whole Windrush mm. fiasco where they have been deported mm. to countries that they left, some of them when they were two, three, four years old, given their whole life to the UK, mm. worked their butts off to in industries that, that Europeans did not want to work in at the time. Transportation, healthcare were the main two, um, and the railway. So the railway would come on the transportation. And then they, they get a knock at the door saying, you're an illegal immigrant. You've paid your taxes for 40 years. You've lived in this country, but actually you're illegal. We don't want you here anymore. So, you know, yeah. growing up with that and growing up with, um, you know, just so many, so many things that tell you you're not welcome. You know, a young black boy goes missing and the police don't take it seriously. A young white girl goes missing 20 years ago and they're still looking for her. You know, okay. and, and you see these stories every day. Um, you see these stories every day. Children suffer with sickle cell in school and the nurses don't know what it is and the child dies. You know, it's part of, of the school's responsibility to be able to deal with this. It's it's an illness that a lot of people from Africa and the Caribbean suffer with. So, you know, the, the list is, is endless. Yeah. So, you know, experiences of, of growing up in the UK, unfortunately, are blighted with... Um, this and more, this and more. There are some good things, but there is a lot that's um, questionable about being a citizen of that country. Um, well, Malaysia and well, Ghana. Yeah. Sorry, go on. Go no, on, no, no. Go. I was just going to ask you, like, what, what was it like compared with um, the Malaysia and Ghana experience at least? Okay, so, so obviously the UK is where I was born. So my childhood, teenage and early years are in the UK. Um, oh, sorry, I have to tell you another funny experience. I went to university, <laughs> Sussex, the University of Sussex. Right. And on the first day at the university, my, my peers um, were in the room together. One peer said to me, how did you get in? Oh, wow. I'm like, sorry, what do you mean? We all have A-levels. I passed my A-levels, passed my GCSE O-levels. and but, but, but they were asking something else. So I said to them, you know what? I had to do a limbo dance. And I prepared a Jamaican dish. I Jamaican dish. And I presented that and they gave me a place. They were like, oh, that's fabulous. <laughs> and I'm like, really? Like, uh... <laughs> really? Not only did I say that, but you believed it. Yeah. That... <laughs> and that's the bigger problem. Yeah. <laughs> so so that's, that's the UK. Um, oh, you know, wow. London is pretty diverse and it has lots of different groups in. And most people um go they're attracted to london because there's that of, there's more that feeling of home and outside of london although there's a better quality of experience there's better air you have more space you get more for your money if you buy a house the quality of schools are often better the feeling of being excluded can be very very painful unless you can find a community when you leave London. So there are African and Caribbean communities in places like Wolverhampton, in Birmingham, in parts of Kent, um, in Manchester. But, you know, often people will find their community or find their tribe if they decide to leave a city like London because it can be quite debilitating having 
having to experience racial abuse and attack every day in certain parts of England. Yeah. So yes, that's 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 the UK. Right. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> Malaysia, Malaysia and Ghana, my, my initial experience with Ghana where I worked here and my experience with Malaysia, were again, both really interesting. They both on a, you know, on, on the paper, they both received their independence at the same time. And so having having worked in Ghana first and then Malaysia, I was a little bit disappointed with the level of development in Malaysia. Um, you know, I, I like public transportation. I like the autonomy that it gives me, um, you know, just, just being a little bit invisible. Um, I've had a driver in a role in, in Ghana and like your guy, your driver knows your business. They tell everybody where you've been, what time you went, where you, who you visited, who came yeah. to your house. So yeah. I liked having um, a different experience in Malaysia. I liked the, the DLR. I liked the trains. I liked going around Malaysia and, and, and experiencing um, Malaysia through, through train travel. It was efficient. It was clean. And, and it was cost effective, you know, and also flying around um, Malaysia and Asia was also, you know, it was very, very realistic. Um, it was a very attractive, um, very doable. And as a, as a single woman, I could do that all with friends and always felt safe. Um, with Ghana, you have two options. You can either fly or you can do, do, do the country by road. So a few months ago, I went to Tamalin, northern part of Ghana, and that was a 13-hour road trip. Wow. And some <laughs> of the road is really bad. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, you know, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm enjoying Ghana, but I would, I would enjoy it more if the train was an option. If I could have done that trip in two hours, um, it would mean that more people who were here for, say, a week or two would, would go up to Tamale and, and experience it. And, you know, they could go and come within, within a couple of days. Whereas if you spent a whole day traveling, you really want to be somewhere for two or three days before you make the journey back to Accra. Yeah. So, you know, there were those, those logistical and, you know, transportation differences, which are big um, because they, they affect the country's economy. They affect, you know, if you live in the north and you want to sell things um, to get them to the airport, etc. You know, those are real. Those are real challenges for yeah. people who are living in a country where the transportation options are limited. Malaysia um, was interesting with the three dominant groups in Malaysia. Um, so you have, you know, your, so the three, the three religious groups. So you have your uh, Muslims, your Buddhists, and your, sorry, Muslim, Buddhists, and Hindus. what's the other group? The Hindus, yeah, yeah and, and also met some Tamil people when I was there. And so what was interesting about being in Malaysia was that most of these people are not Malaysian. <laughs> yeah. So when you, I, Malaysia was my first experience of Asia. I'd never been to Asia prior to Malaysia. Right. You know, it's a 14 hour, hour flight from England. Europeans were always saying, oh, we're going to Thailand, we're going to Thailand, we're going for two weeks in Thailand. And I was like, that's great, have a great time. But I, I myself had never experienced. So when I was offered the position in Malaysia, um, I knew nothing about Malaysia. I, and that's me, I will take a position and say, let's go. And on the other hand, I was offered a job in Kazakhstan, which was paying twice as much. But when I checked, the temperature was minus 41. 
yeah. and I'm not really a cold weather person. I didn't want to go anywhere that was colder than the UK. So <laughs> Malaysia was, was, you know, my preferred option. And so when I got to Malaysia and, you know, the, the Uber drivers and the, the Grab drivers are great storytellers. So you, you learn a lot about Malaysia, these people. Yeah. They also cunningly drive slowly while they're telling you these stories. So you see your fare going up. but they they have a lot of knowledge and so you know i I remember one of the taxi drivers telling me about a lot of the the muslim women who look chinese were chinese Mm. so i was like what's going on he said you know when when a lot of chinese came to malaysia and had girls they didn't want them so they would literally discard them and malaysian families would take them into their home and raise them as, Mus- as Muslims. Mm. So there's a large percentage of Muslims um, in Malaysia who are Chinese. And right. so, and then, you know, a lot of the, the Muslim women that I work with were actually from, you know, their, their parents, maybe one generation back was from Indonesia or was from Thailand or was from a part of Japan. Um, so there was this really interesting thing going on. So eventually I said to my colleagues, so who are the, who are the real Malaysians? Okay. There was this silence. <laughs> there was this silence. I was like, what's going on here? And, and they were like, well, you know, the politically and this and, and, you know, you have to be careful. And I was like, I'm asking a question. Who are they? <laughs> and then I was told they're the Orang Asli. And I'm like, so who are they? And, and it's so political. It's so political. And so as I was moving around, as I said, you know, sometimes I would wear my hair in weave or wig or braids and sometimes wear my afro. And I can remember, I can remember being in, um, oh gosh, where was this place? Oh, name me some of the places in Malaysia. I've forgotten some of them now. Um, um, was it like a popular city, popular tourist city, Malacca? No, 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 not a tourist city, city not a tourist city. Um, was it in KL or outside of KL? No, outside of KL, definitely uh, outside of KL. Penang, Terengganu. Is it a place big? No, big with K, I'm thinking. Um, Kedar. Oh, Kedar, right. Kedar. Right. So we were working with some schools in Kedar right. and we literally had stopped at a local shop and I, I was wearing my afro, and as I walked into the shop, a group of young people with afros walked out, and we just looked at each other. I was like, <laughs> who are they? And people were like, they're the Orang Asio. I said, but they look like me. Mm. People were like, yeah, the indigenous people in Malaysia look like me, yeah? They are black and brown people with woolly hair. And then you get to find out that they're like, treated like the Aborigines. Well, they are, they're the Aborigines. Yeah, basically, so, yeah. In Australia, the excluded group from schools are often the Aborigines. Teachers won't teach them. Mm. All of the racial profiling, they're this, they're that. We don't want them. And you're like, okay, so this this picture of racial prejudice is global. And it was, I'm, I'm not sure why, but it was a massive light bulb when I got to Malaysia because I knew it existed in other places. And Malaysia is unique in that, you know, you have these three groups who were going around doing their thing. And, you know, there were a lot of Hindu um, um, colleagues that I had whose children had left Malaysia because they felt they were treated as third class citizens. And a lot of them are from um, 
southern the southern India. So they're the, they're the dark skinned yeah. Indians. And so in terms of the hierarchy, again of color, they're at the bottom. And and so you're kind of like it's like that's what it felt like. It was like oh my gosh, here we are again, and the people I work with started to treat me differently. So we were encouraged at work to um, apply for speaking engagements, yeah, to raise the profile of the company, apply for speaking engagements, you know, partner with the universities in Malaysia, of which there are many, and, you know, just, just raise the profile. And so I did that. And I was offered an opportunity to speak at a university and my company said, no, you can't do it. I was like, okay. All right, I am feeling the tension here now. <laughs> feeling the tension here now, and other things happened. Other things happened, um, but you start to feel your work being undermined mm. because people are afraid. Yes, they look at you, and you look like the people that they're excluding, mm. except that you're sitting in their office, yeah. and they're afraid. And so, when people are afraid, they start to treat you generally not very well yeah and so being in malaysia was um confirmation of a lot of what goes on in the world but was also for me a unique opportunity to live um yeah just to live and to, and to see uh, an amazing country because the landscape is beautiful yeah. and a lot of the people are beautiful um but the practices reflect you know racism around the world there's nothing unique about um the treatment of dark-skinned people in malaysia you can you know you can write it up next to any other country um and ghana i'm you know in ghana i worked as the vice principal of a very prestigious international school for three years and when i was offered the job um, i didn't know how prestigious it was it was because I was offered the job in the UK. I was interviewed by Skype. And when I was offered the position, my, my Ghanaian friend said, oh my God, who do you know? Who did you bribe? <laughs> and I was like, it was advertised in a UK publication and I, I applied and I was shortlisted and interviewed. And they were like, no, 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 no. Nobody listens to that school unless you know, so you have to pay money. <laughs> and I was like, what is this? Um, and you know, when I was when I was offered the position, um, I was invited to Ghana for a week to meet my team, etc. Before the role began, and the then chairman of the board said to me, "If I had known you were Jamaican, we would not have confirmed the position." Oh wow! So I said, um, "What does my being Jamaican have to do with this role?" And it turned out that somebody in the school who was not Jamaican, who was married to a Ghanaian, um, both that individual and the husband had recently been imprisoned for growing weed in their house. Mm. What does that have to do with me? Yeah. Um, I don't smoke. I've never smoked. And, and the same racial profiling. Yeah. yeah? And I said to him, 
if my being a Jamaican is a problem for you, you can have my resignation now. Because the same way I secure this role, I can secure another role. But I'm not going to leave UK where I would not put up with that and come here and put up with it. Mm. And he said what a lot of white people say, oh, no, 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 no. I've got lots of Jamaican friends. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, true to his words, he didn't say anything to my face again. He may well have said things behind my back. Um, but, Jim, but Ghana has, it, you know, it has its own prejudices. There was recently a very high profile story with an old um, colonial school called, I won't say it, um, but yeah, there's a school that refused to take two students, two A-star students, who in terms of the system here, if you are a particular standard, you get allocated a place in one of the best schools. The students were allocated a place in the top schools. And when they turned up to sign up for their place and to do the, the administration, they were told that we can't accept you. You have dreadlocks. Oh, wow. And the parents said, yeah, but they have been offered a place. They are the best students from their school and you are, you are the best fit. And it's been a massive discussion in Ghana because a lot of old school Ghanaians say that this school is for the best students and the best students don't wear dreadlocks because dreadlocks are associated with a particular kind of behavior and we don't want that type of student in our school. And the counter argument is that this school only takes students with short hair. And there are some private schools that have that on their books. All the boys have to have short hair. Um, unfortunately, there seems to be information coming out which says that this and other schools have taken students who are Sikh, who have long hair and they wear a turban. And um, children from, from other nationalities who have long hair. And so, the argument seems to be we're not taking Rasta children. Yeah. And the parents are Rasta. They said, we're, yes, we are Rasta. And our children are our A-star students. And the school has said no. And it's and, and it's a big, big debate, big debate, because it, you know, it brings into question um, the prejudices that still exist, whether or not those are regional documents, um, policies, briefing documents, that were put in place when the school was set up, whether they need to be challenged, whether they need to be changed. We're now in 2021 and a lot of children wear dreadlocks. It's natural. Yeah. And you're saying that um, we don't accept that here in Ghana. Those behaviors um, where, where like schools in Ghana, I'm assuming like they're like the people who are making these decisions are black as well. They are Ghanaians. Yes, yes, most uh, definitely. And so it, it just means like the the influence. Um, uh, how do I put this? Um, the, Internalized the whole, racism. Yeah, like they, they kind of they, they, are, they are transferring it to other people, basically. Definitely. All right. Definitely. Definitely. And and quite often you see and, and you know, not just in Ghana, but in in many of the countries that were colonized, when so-called independence took place, a lot of the values um, and attitudes had already been, you know, very much, they'd become entrenched as a part of the way of life. 
And so, you know, the elite schools, so-called, pride themselves on being as close to European schools as possible in terms of values often and attitudes. And they are not challenging that. They're not asking whether or not that's the right fit for their African country student profile in 2021. And that really, you know, that really needs to happen. All right. Um, I, I think like um, you, you, you talked a bit about like the, all the, I think we, we talked about it before in the previous Gone interview, um, uh, the tiny microaggressions and basically all of those contribute to like your mental well-being and totally I, I, I think like yeah like a, a lot of people will assume that the uk is uh, mostly racial prejudice free um, because the highlight is usually on the u.s and everything that happens on the u.s um, mm, mm. But then in the, in, the, in the recent past, there's been a BLM, the Black Lives Matter. Um, yeah. Do you think that will have any effect or any, any way affect um, how employers, black experts are treated around the world? Um, okay, so the interesting thing, the interesting thing that that happened last year in 2020 was at the height of the Black Lives Matter. There was a, there were a number of international recruitment agencies that were called out. Yeah, within education. Um, because I work within education, so I'll stay. I'll stay within that lane for this discussion. Right. So a lot of a lot of um, a lot of agencies were called out, and then recruiters who are black decided to speak out. And you can Google this and find this information. But what they said was that as black recruiters, they have been told by a number of large organizations that they don't want black people for senior positions. So these black recruiters started to speak out and said, we have been part of the problem. We've played the game because we were earning a good salary. We didn't want to speak out, but actually black lives matter gave people confidence to speak out. Yeah. It gave people confidence to challenge. Yeah, it was global. People were hearing about it. They were seeing the demonstrations, you know, the, um, the killing of George Floyd. And, you know, for those of us who are old enough to remember the beating of Rodney King on the TV and other, you know, other young black men, older black men, black women, children, parents who have been killed in front of our faces. We were seeing this, yes? And so what the Black Lives, for me, what Black Lives Matter did was it, it raised the profile again. It gave people confidence to speak out. 
yeah? There was a flurry in the UK of everybody wanting diversity training, yes? We need to do diversity training. We need to do diversity and inclusion training. And um, we need to, and, and it was, it was, too much of it was tokenistic, yeah? Whenever there's a problem, um, that reaction for me always feels like it's tokenistic because you've had black staff in your team for years well, yeah, exactly. who've been complaining about how they were treated. Okay. Yeah. You've had white staff in your, in your team for years who have been abusing their team members, who have been neglecting the skills in front of their face. You have had white managers who have felt threatened by the skills and the ability of their black and brown junior staff members. And they have not promoted them. They have not opened the way for them to be in senior positions because it would outshine them. Yeah? That's been going on for a long time and still going on. And so there was a period where people said, oh my gosh, this is terrible. Our organization doesn't have a policy. We need to write one. We need to get somebody in. We need to do some training. And it was like spinning tops everywhere. Yeah, people were ringing me up. Do you want to do? Do you want to do inclusion diversity? I said, hell no. Sorry, that boat has passed for me. There are other people who capitalized on it and made a lot of money. Are still making a lot of money. And you know, there was a recent report in the UK, and part of the findings was that England is not institutionally racist. And this is this is you know big discussion in the UK right now, and a lot of people are very angry, and they're saying that the commission, who wanted this this um, report completed, cherry picked a few people who they knew thought that the UK was not institutionally racist and who are black. Yeah, now you can kind of see that for what it is if you're older. If you're not, you get caught up in the noise and you're angry and you're writing papers and essays and, and challenging and they're playing a game. Yeah, it's a game that's gone on for a long time and the game continues. Black Lives Matter as a point in history is important and significant if people make real sustainable changes. Yeah, in the past that hasn't happened. In the past, there's been a reaction and then people slip back into the comfort zone. And the comfort zone is generally white men at the top, followed by white women. Um, depending on what point in history we are, it might be black women or black men, blah, blah, Asian, sorry, Asian women. You know what I mean? But there's, there's a hierarchy and it slips back into that very quickly. And, you know, the moment, you know, the big story is, you know, the, the Asian hate that's been happening, hate crimes in the UK, and that's been, again, you know, it's a big story. And so a lot of companies are like, we need to look at this. And, you know, it's, it's, it's back to that. Hold on a minute. There are lots of different people who live in the UK and in the US and in different parts of the world. And unless we have practices that can manage those differences in an effective way. And so when you look at those little posters of, equality and equality means that some people will have to stand on a higher bench than others because of what they've had up to that point so when you have a one-size-fits-all approach in your company 
or a I don't see color approach, yeah. you're not addressing that you're not addressing what needs to be changed. Mm -hmm. You're closing your eyes to it. When there are people in your organization who would have had a private tutor for 10 years of their life, for 20 years of their life, they would have been they would have been offered apprenticeships around the world because of their contacts, their family contacts. They would have been able to do a gap year in an amazing building with amazing mentors who then offer them a job. It's not the same when somebody who is coming from, you know, socially disadvantaged, they're not deprived, which is a term that's often used because often their quality of life is very, very rich. But the disadvantage is that they haven't had those experiences. They may not have had the money to buy the books that they needed. They may not have had the mentors or the connections that would open those doors for them. So when they come into your company and you, you bring them in based just on their CV, and then you say, we're all equal here. Well, actually, hell no, we're not. And I may need different levels of support to her or him over there because I haven't had that privilege. And if you don't want to acknowledge that, then you're not ready to deal with the black and brown people who come to your organization from different backgrounds. So the, the, the Black Lives Matter is a moment. It opens up opportunities. What we do with it as individuals, as groups, as organizations, is, is will determine what happens for the next five, 10 years for, for people who need the kind of support that's real and that genuinely isn't offered to them. All right. You, you say what we do with it as individuals. Um, is there something like, as black expats, is there something that we can do with this particular point in time? Is there something that we can do different um, by ourselves or as individuals that can make a difference? As black, okay, as black expats, um, obviously black expats are different. So some people are self-employed and they're building their own businesses in different countries yeah. okay, and what yeah. they can do. So, so a model there would, would be that they can offer mentor opportunities and apprenticeships to people who look like them because they may not have the same opportunities offered to them. They can partner with, with schools and colleges, with young people who are looking for support from people who look like them because you know, the way you look matters, yeah? <laughs> Representation matters. So if somebody who looks like you says, I can offer you a six month apprenticeship. Okay, you're doing your course, but you come and see me one day a week or two days a week. And you have that relationship with the university or with the college, that person is going to have access to all that you know and more, which, which normally Hello? wouldn't be open to them. Being in Ghana right now and not being West African, um, again, it's an interesting op opportunity to learn more about Ghana. There's a big Jamaican community in Ghana, uh, massive, um, because there's so many similarities between Jamaica and Ghana. Ghana's um, political leader, Kwame Nkrumah, was highly influenced by Marcus Mazaya Garvey, who, who you know, had one of the largest African organizations in the world. And Marcus Garvey also, you know, had a community of African-owned businesses, banks, 
shipping um, company, theatre, schools, colleges. You know, he was very much about self-reliance and Nkrumah was, was very much influenced by his writing. So the interesting thing about being in Ghana is that when you tell people you're Jamaican, they're like, yeah, man! And, um, you know, as you travel around Ghana, you hear Jamaican music all the time. And having had the pleasure of being on a bus to Tamale for 13 hours and the driver like Shatawali, <laughs> I said, this guy is just, uh, you know, no disrespect, Shatawali, but most of your work is a copy of people like Buju Banton and Beanie Man um, with a little bit of a Ghanaian sound, yeah. but it's very much Jamaican music. Um, yeah. So a lot of the top um, Ghanaian artists and all of the top Ghanaian music is Jamaican music so it's very interesting when I'm moving around Ghana because I hear Jamaican music all the time plus they love Bob Marley and Peter Tosh and culture and all the old Jamaican yeah, artists um, so yeah so generally I mean I definitely definitely and you know all of the young guys coming up you know walk around and talk like Jamaicans and it's just yeah funny um but yeah, I mean, for me, having been in different places, I was thinking about this. Um, when you're on, when you're an expat, you get used to being the other. And when you go back home, so home for me is England. That's where I was born. You soon realize how how much experience of the world you've had. And it's, and it's great being around people who also have lived in other places because if you've never left your home, the place you were born and traveled and experienced the good, the bad, the ugly, the beautiful, if you've never done that, then what we have in common becomes very limited. And it's not, it's not, yeah, it's not a coincidence that most of my friends have also lived overseas in one, two, three or four places. Because once we get on the phone, we can share stories for years. And um, when I'm speaking to family and friends who've never left the UK, they don't quite get it. They don't quite get it. So um, I've enjoyed being an expat. I, I don't know what the world is going to look like in the future with all the changes that we're seeing right now. And I say to people all the time, if you have the opportunity to travel, um, for work or not for work, but if you have the opportunity to travel within the world that you're living and outside, take it because there's so much to learn and there's so much character building that comes from meeting new people. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Does like traveling for two days, three days count as traveling also? Definitely. Definitely. All right. All right. Definitely. I mean, as I said, I traveled to the north. And Tamale is very, very different to Accra. So Accra is, you know, becoming more and more built up. And there's bits of Accra that look like New York with their big buildings and fancy car parks. And then you get to Tamale and Tamale is still very traditional. Lots of mud huts um, built, built around each other with a central point for meeting and cooking and vast, vast amounts of land that hasn't been touched. Um, a lot of people ride bikes, so you see all the children going to school on their on their bike, their push bike, and then you see elders who are in their 80s and 90s, women in full African dress on their motorbikes um, and then their mopeds, and that's the kind of dominant form of transportation up in the north. It's much hotter than Accra. Um, Landscape-wise, it just looks very, very different. 
And then, you know, speaking to people in Tamale, they will, they, they, a lot of them talked about the anti-slavery movement that was very big in the North. So when people were being enslaved, um, a lot of people in Tamale were like, no, we don't accept this. We don't want this to happen. And there was a whole system of trying to catch the people who were selling other Africans or exchanging other Africans for goods. And then I've met people from Kumasi who have told me that their families traded in humans. You know, most of the wealth that we have was where our family traded in humans. And we've been told never to talk about this, but we know that's where our money came from. So you, when you travel and speak to people, you hear those things. You're not going to hear them. Um, yeah, the, 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 the information is not just going to come to you, but actually talking to people who will tell you that their families and their experiences um, they, they've had these experiences. Yeah, the, the travel, um, you, know, you know, when I was living in Kent before I came to, to Ghana, you know, I, <laughs> this is not traveling, but, you know, just talking to a stranger. And we ended up having the most profound discussion about vaccinations and COVID and socialism. And, you know, at that point he was taking Boris to court <laughs> for the lockdown being illegal. And I was just like, oh my gosh, if I had not spoken to him, and he's something I'd walked past a few times on the road, but that thing about leaving your comfort zone and talking to strangers. So your travel for two or three days can yeah. bring you into contact with a whole range of new people, but also talking to people who you don't know. For more other experts, check out our other episodes. You can find those at otherexperts.com slash podcasts. If you enjoy other experts and you want more, subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Public Radio, or wherever you get your podcast from. Connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn for more updates. If there's something you want us to cover in future episodes, email podcasts at otherexperts.com. My name is Chuko Dibara. Thanks so much for listening.